Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. <laughs> Hi, both of you. Thanks for meeting up with me on, online. Let's talk about our guest this week. Yeah, today we're talking to Samantha Irby. She's an essayist, and her new collection is called Wow, No Thank You. And it's a very funny collection of essays about a whole range of subjects, ranging from disorderly bodies to sex to food. It's a real blast. Yeah, exactly. And we also talked to her about 90s mixtapes and also her experience kind of working with Lindy West and the writer's room on the Hulu comedy Shrill, which I particularly like and have so been enjoying digging into the second season of during this time in quarantine. So definitely if listeners have not watched that, it is very much worth adding to your queue. I have a question for you guys. So we talked to Samantha about the sort of fake nice of Hollywood I feel like I know this fake nice well. Have you encountered the fake nice of Hollywood where people seem really excited about you, but you actually don't really know if they genuinely like you or not? Huh. I don't know if I've experienced that as a Hollywood thing per se, but that I can be pretty socially anxious. So sometimes that's just how I experience the world. <laughs> that was going to be my answer, Kate. It's yeah, like I don't know that, that's a limited to Hollywood. Yeah, I don't think I need like the Hollywood veneer over top of it, though. I'm sure that would add a different flavor to my garden variety social anxiety. But yeah, by the way, and I'm sure that this is shared by the two of you, though I won't speak for you, but that's what I respond to so much in Samantha's writing is that it's about being awkward but also about the ways in which you're compelled to be in public, right? And like the constant balance between writing as a kind of safe public performance that I think we can all relate to, and then the like kind of terrifying, but also really funny experience of being in public. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really straight up. something I appreciate about her work. All right. Should we get to it? Let's do it. Let's go into public with Samantha Irby. So we have Samantha Irby on the line with us today. Samantha is a blogger. She has a blog called Bitches Gotta Eat. And she's also the author of now three essay collections, Meaty, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, and the newest is called Wow, No Thank You. Thank you so much for joining us, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Samantha, I wanted to start off by like addressing the present where we are, right? So one of the things that I've always really loved as a kind of fellow introvert, but extrovert by profession, is somebody who writes so well about, I think, feeling both awkward and exhausted by social interaction. I'm kind of wondering how social distancing is working for you on like a personal level, but also as somebody who has a new book out and kind of how you're navigating now connecting with your fans and kind of doing book tour type stuff in virtual space. So I'm going to be honest and probably make my 
publisher mad and say that when I found out I didn't have to go on tour, <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. I mean, sorry for everyone who's coughing, but like, yay for me for not having to travel all over the country, which sounds very glamorous, but is really just like meeting lots of people while wearing dirty, sweaty clothes that you've already worn. So I was like, my first thought was like, oh, good. I don't have to be in, you know, Lexington wearing a dirty dress and crusty underwear. Wait, hang on. I'm sorry, Samantha. Are you talking about Lexington, Kentucky? (laughs) That's where I'm from. Really? Oh, well, they were, it was on the list. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) go. I was supposed to be there, but Corona was like, no, ma'am. So like once that passed, then we got into like the very kind of awkward space of how do you sell this in a non-traditional way, right? Because it's like, Mm -hmm. ordinarily it would be like, you're in this town, go to this studio, you know, record whatever podcast. And then that night you're going to talk to people in a bookstore. So we've had to pivot and figure out new, well, I haven't had to do anything. Let's be for real. I've had to like read all of the emails of everyone else trying to figure out how to do things in this new climate. It also feels a little, I have tried to not, like, it feels a little gross to be self-promoting during a crisis. And it feels a little like, okay, there's, you know, I have to be like, there's no cure in it, but my book is available to you if you would like to read it and you have like 16 spare dollars, which is hard. So I don't know. I don't know that it that I feel like I have mastered it. I feel like we're doing a pretty good job with the balance of like actually getting it in front of people without looking craven. But I will, I mean, again, not having to run through airports and I do miss the hugging people. I'm really into that. I really love for someone to like, cry in my face and like tell me that a joke I made made them feel better, you know, and like yeah. hug them. I really am into that part. And if I could just get people to swing through where I live and do that, that would truly be amazing. But I'm glad I'm not on the road. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to work it out so I don't ever have to go on the road again. <laughs> so I, next book I can be like, well, Remember the pandemic of 2020, I did okay selling it from my own dining room. How about we do that again? (laughs) (laughs) One way in which I think the book is really relevant is there's so much discussion of the human body and the kind of lack Mm. of control that we have over our own bodies and this difference between the way, especially for women, that kind of beauty is represented and ease and just everyone's supposed to wake up and be perfect and not have dandruff or bad periods or nasty bathroom time or whatever. And you get into so much of this really visceral detail of your own body and kind of just what you deal with on a daily level. So I wondered if you could just 
talk about that. And if you think that discussing kind of bodily functions and uncomfortable states that are taboo, how that might change the way that we all relate to our own bodies. Well, I think for me, when I first started writing my blog, I was dating a lot and not a lot, but I was dating and it felt really important for me to be honest in my writing because if you are actually going to go meet a person, like they're going to figure it all out anyway. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I can't, I got to be what I am. Otherwise I'm going to spend more time than I want to explaining like why I lied. So it's like, I'm just going to put it all out there. And that way, you know what you're getting. And if you don't like it, great. (laughs) I'm not going to disappoint you later. And I think as my writing has evolved, and especially as social media got bigger and bigger, and we, I do really enjoy someone's very curated Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And you see like all of the beautiful parts, but I know that that can be damaging if I let myself believe that that's the way it is. And somehow I'm the only one who's like gross and having a hard time. And so I feel like what I do kind of balances out the messages we get from the world. I don't know that enough people are listening to me for it to make a huge difference. But I feel like if I'm like, hey, listen, I have porcupine whiskers coming out of my chin and like my scalp is, you know, (laughs) peeling off in chunks. (laughs) And like, I miss some spots when I'm washing or like whatever it is, right? You know, like whatever disgusting (laughs) disgusting thing it is my hope is that it makes someone else feel better or not even better but less alone like okay sure I don't have to only measure myself against these like perfect tableaus that people have created of their lives and like the beautiful pictures they give me of themselves there's also this person over here being like my neck looks like a pack of hot dogs or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. dumb thing. It's just like, there needs to be those of us saying that kind of stuff to counteract the very smooth and non-jiggly things we see in pop culture. Not even pop culture, but like society. Because it's not even just models and stuff, right? It's like your neighbor down the street is posting her artfully curated, beautiful picture. And it's like, girl, (laughs) I saw you at the grocery store. You don't look like that. And I'm going to let you run. But I also feel like I'm going to post like my stained teeth or whatever like my reality is. I have given too long of an answer. And now I don't even know if I answered your question. No, I I think you did. And I guess I wonder, I think that some of the humor in your book is about delving into in more detail, the state of your own body than people normally would. And I think for a lot of people, the body is kind of a horrific sight that anything that deviates Mm -hmm. from the norm is very frightening because we have such clear ideas of what's normal, what's attractive, and what's not. And there's a lot in the book that 
there's an acceptance that you find in your own body. And I wonder if you could just maybe talk about that transition of being less anxious about things that deviate from these beautifully curated norms. Well, I think there's a point at which I just was like, okay, this is what it is, right? And I don't know if that's like a hopelessness or a letting go, but I do think you reach the age where you're like, okay, I think at like 22, you're like, you know, I still could change my body and do stuff and take vitamins and like learn Pilates or whatever. But like by 35, it's like, oh, fuck that. You know, like this is it. I can put new clothes on it or clean it in a different way. But like fundamental change is not happening. This is who I am. And I gotta be fine with it. Otherwise, like, it's just misery. If I'm saddled with this body forever, and I hate it, I'm just gonna have a bad life. So it's much easier, well, easy is not the right word, but it's the word I'm going to use. It's much easier to just like be cool with it than it is to push back against nature. You know what I mean? Like I like to think, or I like to remind myself, both with my physical body and my various mental illnesses, that like, Our bodies are all like chemicals and hormones and cells and lots of scientific things that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And feeling like I, a regular dumb person with a high school education, could do science (laughs) on my like biology body is nuts. It's like, I'm just going to let what happens to it happen and put the drugs in it that I can, like whatever the doctor says to take, that's what I'll do. But like, I just have to accept what it is and that I don't know how to have it be anything else. I wanted that to like sound uplifting, but it doesn't really. I think it does. No, I, I, honestly, I think it does because it's true after a certain point, the only other option is to make yourself crazy by feeling inadequate. And that's no good. Yeah, I did this interview where this guy asked me, I'm surprised you're depressed when you, you're you married and you have a book. And I was like, sir, depression is a chemical imbalance. <laughs> like, my wife's not Einstein. Like, she's just a person that I split the bills with. What are you talking about? Of course, like, these outside things don't change your depression. And, like, Looking at it that way has really helped me just come to terms with this is what I am. This is what I have to deal with. Let's laugh about it and just try to get to the next day. Because like I said, I don't know science. What am I going to fix myself? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that sounds like a question by a person who's never been depressed, maybe. Or who's maybe felt sad. When sad things have happened. Depression is a problem that like my brain has. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Okay. Let's talk about that actually. So this book is dedicated to Will Butrin, which I thought was very funny, Mm -hmm. but you are very open about your history with depression. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that history and how you've come to a place where you feel comfortable dedicating this collection to a drug like Wellbutrin? Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm trying to get it for free. That's a pitch for a sponsorship. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to get Mr. Wellbutrin a copy of this book so we can have a mutually beneficial relationship. <laughs> so, I mean, I had like a an insane childhood that was like really terrible and I was depressed and attempted suicide, but we didn't have any money. And I also grew up with mental illness in the black community. It's like schizophrenia and that's it, right? Like anything else, it's like go to church and fix it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not, no one was like trying to get me into therapy or fix any of my problems in a conventional way, you know, it ended up being like, here's a box of cookies, go be quiet, which is its own solution, I guess. It was a band-aid at the time. And then once I got into adulthood and could really identify what was happening, first of all, like getting a diagnosis is incredibly freeing, especially when Mm. you have the type of anxiety and depression that's like, I don't want to do things and I can't get up. It's very easy. I mean, you know, in America, it's like, get up, shake it off, walk around the block, you know, and it's really easy to be like, oh, well, I'm just lazy or I just am, I'm a bad person or, you know, and so it's like really freeing for someone to be like, actually take it easy on yourself. There's a chemical problem in your brain and that makes you feel this way. And I was like, oh, well, great. I would love to talk about it with anyone who will listen because there've got to be people like me who were as children told you're just lazy or you're just stupid or, you know, whatever. You're just moody. You have PMS, all the labels we put on people other than the correct one. And then writing. I mean, again, I feel like everything that I write about that is maybe something people don't talk about in polite company just is more freeing for me. I feel like with everything I do, my selfish reason is that maybe it'll make my time moving through the earth a little bit easier. When I started writing about having diarrhea all the time, it was just like, you know, the other purpose this serves is that I don't have to explain to people why I'm going to be in the bathroom for 10 minutes or, you know, people already know what they're getting. And it's the same thing with the depression. The first thing is that it just makes me feel, it unburdens me of that information. I don't like walking around like, weighed down by a bunch of secrets and bad feelings and trying to hide things that are real. And then the second purpose is I recognize that not everybody can feel as free as I do to talk about all of their stuff. So if I can put voice to some of those things and make someone else feel less alone, because like me writing about being depressed doesn't cure anybody else's depression. But if there's a black girl whose mom is like, you're just lazy, who comes across my work and is like, oh, here is a person who's like me. It makes me feel less alone to know that this person exists in the world. Then like, that's the other reason I do it. 
in the hopes that like someone will read it and connect and feel less alone. Speaking of feeling less alone, <laughs> I don't know. If that's, like, there's, there's no. I love sitting after reading all of your essays because I'm like, how does one transition from this thought to the next? My but poor actually, editor who has to put all these things in order. I'm like, sorry, girl. I don't know how you're gonna go from the porn one to the one about my dead mom, but figure it out, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Samantha Irby, author of Wow, No Thank You. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Rufy Thorpe on the line with us today. Her latest novel is called The Knockout Queen. It's a fantastic book, but Rufy has called us to give us another book recommendation. Rufy, what book are you going to recommend? The book I'm most excited about this summer is Lynn Strong's novel, Want. And Mm. it is one of those books that takes you like a fever dream. It's short and unbearably intense and kind of like the, the suspense of it is because someone is telling the truth a little bit too accurately. It becomes terrifying. And it's all about being a mother, but it's also about money. And I think that it's one of the more interesting looks at money and class that I've seen in a a novel recently. Interesting. Okay. Can you give us just like a, who the main character is in the plot? So it is about a mother and her young children and her marriage. And she and her husband both kind of came from upper middle class backgrounds and then made impractical life decisions like getting a PhD in English. Mm, And now I'm familiar with that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And now their lives are kind of a nightmare trying to Mm. juggle the constant stress of bills with their own work and having kids. And it creates this kind of unending anxiety and fever dream, but also an almost like Kafka-esque like strangeness and alienation. She winds up bankrupting them by having a C-section basically. And so her body has sort of like ruined their lives. So it poses all these interesting questions about the way we have organized our society and what kind of really matters to us and and what's a practical way to make a life. That sounds fantastic. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It is Want by Lynn Strong. And it's coming out in the summer. July, I think. I think it's July 7th, but... But who knows? But who knows? Anything might happen. I can't trust um, (laughs) it. Well, no one can be trusted at this point, at least with plan. (laughs) Well, something for listeners to look forward to. Thank you so much, Rufy. Thank you. We've been talking to Rufy Thorpe. Her latest novel is called The Knockout Queen. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Samantha Irby, author of Wow, No Thank You.
Okay, so one of the essays that you have in this collection is called Late 1900s Time Capsule. And it's basically a 90s mixtape, right, that you imagine for the reader. And Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I want to, as a child of the 90s, or I should say probably more as a teen of the 90s, I want to be really sad for the Spotify generation who will never know the incredible oh, act of love and dedication that producing a mixtape. Actually, Day and I have talked about this before. The like mixtape actual cassette tape. Like that yeah. is an act of love and labor that mm-hmm. is not the same as generating a Spotify playlist. Putting that a recording said, device to your radio right at the yes. moment when it was playing the song yeah. that you needed it to play was it was like i mean it, it could be included in the sure sex is fun but have you <laughs> managed to record a song off the radio yeah. <laughs> That's a euphoric feeling that kids now will never ever have yeah, yeah. yes and on exactly. the one hand i feel bad for them but on the other hand just to make myself feel better, I'm like, I, you know, they don't deserve it. I'm glad we had it. And <laughs> exactly. It they wouldn't appreciate it, Samantha. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so, okay. So one thing that I noticed in there that I was thinking about, so two quick questions about this. One is I noted the entry for the song On the Bound by Fiona Apple, which is obviously from Title in 1996, which I and many, many other people loved. And I wanted to know, have you listened to her new album, which the internet is going crazy over, Fetch the Bolt Cutters? And then, you know I have. You know I was up at midnight. <laughs> I purchased it. I didn't even listen to it on Spotify. I bought it on iTunes to give Fiona her five Good cents. Good for you. she makes from <laughs> So I'm wondering, so like, obviously you loved it. And then I want to know, like, are there any other... 90s artists that you wish were back right now or like who are you longing for in this moment i am in a i mean you know i like to be inside i love a cocoon i really wish that portishead was making music again i know they said they wouldn't but like beth's voice i mean Oh, I mean, it kills me. I don't know where PJ Harvey is. I know she's put out some stuff like within the last few years, but I could go for another PJ Harvey album. And then like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, if like D-Light wanted to put out some (laughs) disco, you know what I mean? Some like modern disco right now, I would not be mad at that. I was listening to Groove is in the Heart the other day, and I was like, mm, it still bumps. It's so it good. It's so good. <laughs> I love both of those. And from Delight to Portishead, that's like the unique range that is very much Samantha Irby. Yeah. Yeah. I am, I mean, I have tastes all over the map. I don't know where it came from, but like, that's why putting a mix together was like so cool. Cause you could mm-hmm. really, I mean, for me again, everything I do has a sinister selfish element, right? Like part of it is like, look at all this cool stuff I'm into. <laughs> like, yeah, I do love heavy metal 
and disco. Don't you want to be friends with me? Don't you want to reciprocate my crush? And the answer was always like a resounding no, but I still <laughs> tried. <laughs> yeah. But then you also opened yourself up to ridicule with the Dave Matthews Band reference. So. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about that. Because, okay, here's the thing. This is not what you brought me on to talk about, but unfortunately, I'm going to talk about it. He is, his voice is like an angel. I know mm. like it's easy to clown him, but he's like earnest and he writes like, beautiful love songs and his falsetto is gorgeous <laughs> and, I, and i know people will make fun of me but i really i love him i watched like remember well i uh, if you guys aren't diehard day fans you probably don't know but he did a uh like watch me play the guitar in my garage kind of concert and it was just him and a guitar like singing and it was so beautiful i absolutely like cried three times i <laughs> i really do love him mm. i know it's like so corny but i do i love him so much his tiny desk watch his tiny desk he's amazing okay and <laughs> end of commercial for dave matthews that's cool you're so honest that's all i'll say but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel I feel free to admit that because I like cool stuff too. Like if I was yeah. only listening to him, I'd be like, Ugh, don't ask me. But I, I like some other stuff too. Yeah, you, you bought your you you got your cred so you can admit to like <laughs> yeah. Matthew. I get it. I totally get it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, uh, just like that, that essay, you know, takes a pretty free form of the, of the mixtape. And there are lots of other times here just formally that you, you know, do really inventive things, just the way you organize, you know, your, and I think a lot of it comes from just the comedic element in your writing. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious in, in terms of process, like how you, you know, Part of it does seem like there's some element of hyperbole and pushing whatever sentiment um, you have just as far as it could possibly go. How did you come to writing comedy and what do you think is essential in, in terms of what makes your writing funny? Oh, man, that's a, this is a good, like, serious person question. So, okay, so first I want to say about the different forms you know i love a list i love a like an unstructured kind of thing sometimes there are things that i want to write about and i want them to be in a book which i feel like is my like most serious and important stuff um but i can't figure out a way to structure it like an essay so then i just have to be like okay uh i'm gonna do a bit you know, like lesbian bed death, where it's like, I don't know, I don't know how to write about, write in essay form about like women of a certain age who don't care about having sex, but I can write a bunch of one-liners about uh, things we do that are as fulfilling as uh, getting in bed and often take the place of it. What makes my... You know, how, how do you make something funny? That's 
you know, how, what do you think the secret is to making something funny in your own writing process? So for me, I think when I decide I'm going to write about something, I always try to find the most absurd part of it and like turn that all the way up. And you use the word hyperbole before, which is perfect because I do re I mean, I think when you exaggerate, I always write about things as if they are the worst thing or the biggest thing or the, you know, I take a trip to the grocery store and turn it into a nightmare grocery store trip from hell. And that <laughs> to me, that is where I, like, I like to find the nugget of something absurd that in like a larger thing that I can write about and then just run with that. So I think that's like part of the process. Sometimes things happen and they're just straight up ridiculous. Like that essay I wrote in this book about trying to make a new friend as an adult that happened. And I was like, Oh, that's comedy. Going to write about it. Going to turn the dial up to 11. And then other things where I'm like, I want to write about how much I love my cell phone but I don't want it to be, you know, <laughs> dumb and pointless. So that I just, you know, think about all of the ways that people pretend they don't like their cell phones and then kind of flip those and turn the dial up. I guess my style of comedy is really just exaggerating the shit out of something until <laughs> it comes to me. Yeah, that's funny. Did that sound like I know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah. Well, I think you do. Obviously, you you you're really legit. You're really funny. You thank know. you for telling. Thank you for saying I'm legit. Cause like, like I know how to make people laugh, but when people ask me like about craft, I'm like, oh, uh, I don't know. I've just been writing jokes on the internet for a long time, and then they let me put them in a book. Is that craft? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Whew. So maybe this is sort of keeping in keeping with the idea of craft, but can you tell us why you started writing? And, you know, so you started oh. writing on the internet. You started this blog. Why did you start it? Because uh, I wanted to fuck this dude. And he was dating a girl who, a poet, who was, like, incredible. And I... And he was like, yeah, we have, like, an open thing, you know, like, real cool. And he's like, and I'm really into writers. And I had, like, written some short stories in high school or whatever. <laughs> but I didn't, like, think of myself as a writer. And I was like, uh, how can I show this person I'd like to date that I'm a writer without going to the trouble of, like, trying to secure a book deal or take a class? And my friend was like, oh, why don't you start a blog? And so I started a blog. Really, it was just for this one person. And then other people started reading it. And, like, I dated him, and it was, like, fine. And then it ended. And so then I was like, well, done with this. And my friend Laura, who had told me to start it, was like, oh, you can't, like, stop. Like, people read this now. I look forward to it. You have to keep writing it. So then I just kept writing it. I wish it was like some noble thing that I was like, I had a fire within me, but no, it's 
I truly was. And it, like the well, you did have a fire in you. It just <laughs> yeah. wasn't the one that people normally talk about. <laughs> yeah. There was I a purpose, that- Samantha. You weren't shooting in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm going to teach little kids who want to write. I'm just going to be like, listen, find someone that you have a big crush on fixate on them and then write what you think will impress them and make them laugh. And there you go. You're well, going to be a writer. I mean, you're, well, you're joking, but, but there is some, you know, there, I think there is like some connective tissue there because one of the things that you keep bringing up that's sort of clear from the, from the book is this, you know, it's about not being alone, right. About feeling yeah. like you, you are not alone. And so to write in order to date someone is also about not being alone in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And but the, and that seems to be one of the sort of thematic ties between know, your work and 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 perhaps the the goal of writing here in this case. My yawning pit of need. Yeah, yawning pit of desperation exactly. for <laughs> for human approval. <laughs> Well, or some kind of human interaction, right? That, like, you know, that uh, that writing got in that particular instance. It got it yeah. Got no, I'm uh, laughing, but I'm being for real. Like, there is definitely an element of like, I I wasn't loved enough. Please love me. Mm-hmm. Also, anyone who tells you that that is not a factor is lying. Uh, but I'll say it. Uh, I, there is still, I still am like, you know, if I could, I just never felt good enough. If I could just do one more thing to make one more person tell me that I'm okay and that they approve of me and they like me, then I'll do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry to take this to a sad place. I don't think that's sad. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think that's like a thing that most of us do actually is a way of like getting through the world. And and like, here's the thing. I feel like if we could admit it, then that frees all of us, you know, but there's always going to be one person who's like, I actually do it because I have a towering intellect and the, I, it's a crime to withhold it from the world. And I'm like, well, (laughs) not me. I'm sad and I didn't have a, I didn't, no one wanted to date me until I was 25. So, (laughs) so now you have to read my writing until I'm dropped. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So if we can talk about another experience in which you felt like a real fish out of water, (laughs) can we talk about uh, your experience on working on Lindy West's show, Shrill, which was Mm -hmm. on Hulu. And I, I have to say, you know, it's like that show is so beautiful. Like it is in all the ways that in in many ways, I mean, I know it was a writer's room situation, but I can definitely see why your sensibility was a good fit for that show because it is about a woman who is learning, who on the one hand does love herself and also has mm-hmm. to learn how to love herself. So there's this kind mm-hmm. of constant push and pull between like, I'm making fun of myself, you know, like I'm having fun with this because that's how I'm moving through the world. But also like, as I'm having fun with this, I'm also being like, this is my thing and it's okay. And I'm making space for myself in the world. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. this very interesting, like defense offense thing 
um, that I think is like, is like a cool blend. Um, but I want to talk about, so this appears in your essay, Hollywood Summer. And I want to ask kind of both a little bit just about what that experience was like, um, but also what you found difficult or and or exciting about writing for TV and whether or not you would kind of rush to jump back into that space. Because it's a totally different kind of genre. Yeah. I mean, Lindy and I are, full disclosure, are like close friends. And we had the same TV. We had the same TV agent. So it was very easy for me to get that job. I don't know how easy it was on her end, but she demanded (laughs) that they hire me. And I think there was some pushback. And then she was like, I'm not budging. And they were like, okay. So I think what was hard is what's hard about any new thing. Like I, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know like the terms it's, it, it feels like so cliche to say, but they re- they really do like speak a whole different language in Hollywood. And uh, one of the things that is like hard and confusing out there and really made me feel like a Midwestern potato is that everyone is nice, but it doesn't always mean that they like you or they have good intentions, right? Like New York is like a hostile place, right? Where people would like push you in front of a bus if you were in their way on the sidewalk. And I know how to deal with that. And the Midwest is like, you know, people will just adopt you on the street. But like working in Hollywood is weird because like you'll think you have done a good job and everyone kind of like says good job. And then later you find out that like, Oh, maybe they didn't like that or they're not using that or whatever. And it's, it was like a learning curve, like trying to figure that out. Also, we had to get the show completely written in, I think it was six or seven weeks, eight weeks, something like that like this really short amount of time and I was learning on my feet while trying not to let anybody know like how like nervous and out of place I felt. So that was, I'm, I'm always confident that I can write whatever you need me to write. I've written enough things that I never feel like if I'm given an assignment that I can't do it, but it's all the other stuff. Like the, how do you talk to these people and do they like me? Do they respect me? Do they, do they hate, do they resent that I'm here? You know, it's like all that kind of stuff that was hard for me, but the, like the writing of the actual episodes, it really is just like, imagine yourself talking and then throw some bits in or like I've, I've done enough fiction writing on my own to know how to like set a scene and what do I want this scene to look like? And it's a little easier than fiction in that you like in your script, you're just like, this is the room. This is where she's standing. This is what she has on. This is what her hair looks like. She says this, he says that like that part it felt like really easy to me. I would much rather do that than like write 
a novel, but all of the, how do I talk to this person and what's expected of me in this place? And that, that stuff was, was hard for me. As for jumping back in it. So I just, finished i mean i don't think i announced this anywhere so maybe you guys are getting the scoop but i just finished um working on the second season of work in progress it's a show on showtime oh uh, starring abby mcenany it's like a queer very queer show uh about depression (laughs) so it ticks ticks all my ticks all my boxes <laughs> so if we are ever let out of our homes that's gonna shoot sometime in the near future and then that'll be on tv plus i have my own show in development at comedy central where abby jacobson from broad city and i uh adapted my first book meaty and i wrote and rewrote and rewrote pilot and we just like right before everything went down, we got picked up to pilot. So we were supposed to shoot a pilot this summer and now everything is on hold. But I imagine when things come off hold, we'll shoot that pilot. And if they like it, hopefully they'll let us make a whole show. So yeah, I had a weird experience there, but like work in progress was in, Chicago. So like I'm at home and everybody in the room is like, you know, down to earth Midwesterners. (laughs) And then working on Meaty, it's just me and Abby, which again is like a safe, you know, feels like a safe place where I don't have to worry like that my shoes are wrong or I'm saying a dumb thing and letting them know how much I don't know. So I, I do enjoy like the Hollywood stuff, but I mostly want to work on things. I don't want to pursue it in the like, I'll work on any show. Just put me in a room. I love it. I love it. I love it. I want to do it. If it's like, this is my friend's show and it's cool. And I don't have to feel like a moron who doesn't know anything. So, (laughs) so sounds like I'm not going to be doing too much work in Hollywood, but (laughs) we'll we'll see. Well, maybe that's a good place to end because it lets us all look forward to another Samantha Irby project, hopefully sometime in the future when we're all let out of our confinement. I hope so. Thank you so much, Samantha, for joining us. Thank you. This was great. You guys are great. Thanks so much. I hope you're all doing okay. You too. You too. Yeah. We've been talking to Samantha Irby. Her latest collection of essays is called Wow, No Thank You. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance. 
and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. 